0: I'm Sarah Zanbergen and I'm the ambassador for Stance, and this is the Take Back, Talk Back podcast. Our mission for this podcast is to open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. I am so pleased to introduce today's guest, David O'Leary. David is the founder and principal of Kind Wealth, which is a social purpose driven business that helps underserved Canadians take control of their money so they can live life on their own terms. David has been published in the Globe and Mail, National Post, Advisor.ca, and the Huffington Post, and he's also appeared on CBC, BNN, and CNBC Africa. He's passionate about coffee, great food, the Oxford comma, and inspiring others to give back. So from one coffee drinking Oxford comma enthusiast to another, welcome David to the Take Back Talk Back podcast.
1: Thanks, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm really excited to have you. My first question for you today, kind wealth has very similar values to stance. I was so excited when I read about that. We really want to smash taboos about money, make it okay to talk about. Can you describe for yourself what that moment was that made you feel like this was the concept you wanted to explore within the financial industry?
1: Well, yeah, it probably wasn't a, a single moment, but a building of probably experiences and courage over time that that led me to feel that way. And it was both personal and through Kind Wealth as a business. So just to unpack that a little bit. I spent a fair bit of my, I've spent my entire career in the investment industry and financial advice industry. Uh, It was only maybe in the past five, six years or so that I uh, went into uh, financial advisory practice where working with individuals and helping them directly rather than working at an institutional level um, where you never see the individuals you're helping face to face. And uh, and I set it up because I felt like there was a lot wrong with the industry and a lot that I wanted to fix rather than just sit back and complain about it. And as you work with individuals and you see, you know, firsthand the challenges that they face, both like financially and the questions they face, there's also kind of this emotional and the softer side of of, of things, the emotional, psychological aspects of money that really become apparent. And so between that, seeing firsthand the challenges and issues that our clients face, and then my own personal um, struggles of some, you know, I, I claim bankruptcy at they ended up being at twenty five, but the the story actually folded many years before that. So it was all the shit was hitting the proverbial fan if I can say that word on this podcast at the, in my early twenties, and it was a very scary period of time. And we can talk about that if you want to. But it it ended up I you know I spent the next fifteen years twenty years after that experience hiding from it um, and being ashamed of it and not talking about it, and it was only. A year and a half ago, maybe, that I have kind of opened up about that and actually started to talk publicly about it. And so it was just sort of, I think, recognizing in our clients, there are some money avoidance issues, psychological hangups, emotional hangups they have around money, led me to kind of talk about my own. Because I think as a financial advisor, as a professional in the investment industry, if I can talk about it, it maybe gives license for other people to talk about their mistakes.
0: I really like that concept a lot and in our time with Stance we've we've noticed something that you know money really is an emotional thing and I think people don't give it that much credit but I recall and I spoke about this in season 1 any of our our lifetime listeners lifetime only been one season. Sarah, get over yourself. Um, We'll know that we did an an event and we surveyed our our guests at the event. And the top three emotions that came up that were connected with money were guilt, shame, and fear. So that's absolutely something that needs to be addressed. So it's amazing that you're doing that.
1: Yeah, I would say like the the traditional views of what we're taught to believe about money are you know, there's things that you don't talk about, right? So you don't talk about money, religion, politics. And that idea that you don't talk about money, I think, is precisely wrong. We also have this notion that money is shouldn't be emotional, right? Money is a cold, calculating decision. You divorce yourself of emotion when you're making investment decisions, for instance. And I think that kind of belief system and that viewpoint is uh, very harmful um, because it it is very detached from... The reality that money is incredibly emotionally charged.
0: Incredibly so. So there's something that my mentor, friend, and the founder of Stance, Kim Kuklowitz, says to me often, and that phrase is, think globally, not locally. And that phrase popped into my head as I was reading your bio and learning about your experience in Sierra Leone, learning about microfinance. So this is two questions in one. One, for our listeners, what the heck is microfinance? And two, what does think globally, not locally, really mean to you?
1: Great questions. Uh, so, microfinance uh, effectively uh, is a system of finance that we all kind of enjoy here. You know, you go, you have a set of banks and, and financial services companies that provide you bank accounts, lo- small loans, credit cards, car loans, mortgages, all sorts of financial products, insurance. Financial services uh, that – so microfinance is essentially financial services at very small scale for lower-income folks. And that can look like low-income folks in here in Canada and North America all the way to your really developing countries. And the idea – what's probably best known within microfinance is microcredit. And that is the idea that, you know, if you want to start a business, it's really hard as an individual – in a developing country to get access to credit, which you know all of us need if you wanna start a, a meaningful business. Very hard to start one without any credit. And um, and so these would be small loans. They can be anywhere from $10 to you know $500, $1,000, but it would typically stop around $500, $1,000 would be the high end. And it would be in countries where it's really hard to otherwise access credit so that they can start a business and generate an income and provide for their families.
0: That's fantastic.
1: The second question was thinking global, um, and I think there's a lot of ways you can look at that. I mean, I, I think it's a really provocative statement. I mean, at, at its surface, like, you can kind of think of it under kind of one dimension. I, I think it could be unpacked a lot more, and you, there's a lot you could take from that. A, I would say, I my inclination has been when I've when I started to connect with my purpose and passion and mission, it was, it was in an international context and in particular a humanitarian context. And that meant, you know, for me, it was kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And where are there people in this world who suffer sort of the greatest challenges and barriers? And I really, my heart gets called there because, you know, not that there aren't needy people everywhere there are, but if we're going to sort of prioritize, let's kind of go down. Cause I, I view us all as a global, like, you know, we're all brothers and sisters and, and I've Think if you believe that, and you truly believe that all human life has equal value, then then we want to start with those who are facing the biggest challenges, regardless of where they happen to live. And and I think the other way you can think about think global is instead of local is you know look at the bigger, broader picture. So if we're trying to ta- tackle challenges and problems, let's not worry like let's stop a little little less focus on band aids solutions and what are the underlying systemic. What are the kind of bigger picture issues? If I was going to maybe interpret that a little less literally, I I think there's a lot of value to be had in thinking about what's the underlying systemic problem here? How do we tackle that? We need some Band-Aid solutions because there are people right now that are suffering and need help. But while we do that, let's not forget to and let's make sure we divert time and energy and resources to solving the systemic issues. Um, The last thing I would say, though, is on the flip side, I think you can go maybe too far with the literal interpretation of, of thinking global and acting global. And that, you know, I think there's been a tendency to say, "You know, I don't belong to any particular city country. i'm I'm a citizen of the globe, and I love that notion, but it also kind of removes you from any if you're too if you take that too far, you may be removed from the uh, from belonging to anything and having any responsibility for a particular community. and when you when you are rooted in a place, you have an obligation, I think, to those literal neighbors around you. And so belonging somewhere actually has some, some value too. So it's, I think like the tension, there's some, maybe a bit of not tension, but a good tension, a healthy tension between the global and the local.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting that you say that because that's something that I think we've all seen over the past, you know, year and a half and counting with, um, with the pandemic is that I, I personally saw a lot of community coming out, whether it was, you know, my own personal neighborhood or seeing things on social media of communities coming together, which was really uplifting and inspiring to see. So if we can bring the same kind of feeling to finance, how amazing would that be?
1: Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I I did personally as well see a lot of people, individuals, organizations really stepping up during the pandemic. And I think what the pandemic did was... um, made us realize that, like, no matter how wealthy you were, you were, you know, we're all interdependent on one another. And when one person gets sick in, you know, rural Africa somewhere, it can it can impact all of us because this disease can spread. And so we do. I think I think I hope it was a reminder to people that we need to look after everyone when none of us are safe unless all of us are. Right.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about men and women and finance. Um, there seems to be this old notion that men are more financially savvy than women, but our research that led to Stance's inception showed thus otherwise. In fact, men and women are pretty much at par with their financial knowledge. There was a gap of about 10, 11%, but the women we surveyed, despite that knowledge, were less financially confident. So in your experience with kind wealth, do you find that rings true?
1: I think there's I think that's probably true. Um, I think it varies wildly from one person to the next, but uh, I think that's probably true. I, I think I think behaviorally there are I so the knowledge doesn't surprise me that there's that knowledge gap of financial terms or things like that. And I think a lot of that's cultural, right. Men are taught to that they should take control of the money and um, less that tends to be less true for women uh, on the whole. And it wouldn't surprise me that there's, and I think I I would say it's it's hard to say because I we deal with I think a certain demographic and I, well, oftentimes I think with the clients we're dealing with the the women in the relationship if it, or if it's a you know a woman on her own are often quite I would say confident that we have a lot of A type personalities but but that aside I think like I, it wouldn't surprise me if in the broader population there were you know women had less confidence overall and it would you know that should correlate probably with the knowledge gap. But um, I would say that the behaviorally, the, and they're I think typical. I hope they're not too stereotypical, but I think there are some differences between men and women, generally, and that some of those differences are position women to be better, better investors and better with their finances. I can tell you personally, I've experienced quite a few circumstances where um, men have in a in a relationship, the the husband had sort of taking control of the finances, made some really bad decisions, particularly around investments, blew up their portfolio. And then the, you know, the woman t- took over in their kind of, you know, later in life, like kind of in retirement type of stage. And so now she's kind of like, you know, they've obviously had a lot of fights over it. He said, fine, you take care of it. And then she does. And she, like, the first thing she'll do is reach out for help and like, okay, I want to engage an advisor and I want to understand this. And then, I, so it seems to me a little of that old cliche where, men won't stop and ask for directions, is really harmful in in the context of making investments. And then this need for like, you know, I want a big return, excitement out of it. it, to the extent that that is a male phenomenon more than a female phenomenon, it's not always. But I yeah. think generally, it's probably a little more true of men than it is women. That's a very un, uh, harmful instinct to have in, a, in an investment case, especially when it's coupled with you're not super knowledgeable about underlying investments, which, you know, the average person's not. So I think women in a lot of ways have the ingredients to be much better with money than men
0: and and hopefully with you know organizations like your own and and like stance and a whole host of others that we're happy to support we can really push this forward and and really empower women to to say listen you have the access you have the know-how the the stats are showing you know it's not that you're less financially literate it's you know let's let's just start opening up these conversations and uh and and taking control and i wonder do you think that there's a little bit of false confidence on the other side, on the male side, um, we we had a guest allude to that last season. Our, our one of our male guests, and he said, "You know, a lot of the times because we are taught to kind of, I mean, quote unquote, man up and uh, and and take on that role." Do you think that that plays a part?
1: No, I false confidence. No, I've never been guilty of that. <laughs> no, I, I think that's hundred percent true. I've I've had lots of situations where I've. You know, only retrospectively realized, oh well, I had I was wildly overconfident in my abilities to do that. And only realized after the fact, right, there was a lot I didn't know about what made me think I was qualified to to do that. I, I do think I you know, it's, it's hard to say. I haven't studied the issue in depth. So I'm only talking anecdotally. I think anecdotally my experience is that's true more of men and and again that's that's harmful. I do think there's also you touched on a separate issue. You know, this idea of um Gender equality and toxic—I like—I think there's some like unhealthy views of of masculinity that contribute to men being you, feeling the need to be in these positions where they should take the lead, they should have the answers to the questions that they that you know, what it what is it to be a man? And there are certain expectations society places on men, which is really a, un, unhealthy and, and harmful, and, and quite frankly. I think in a lot of cases, you know, I don't mean to make men out to be victims, because God knows that, you know, they've been in the positions of power. But, I, you know, you can, you can hold that to be true, while we'll also still kind of admitting that there are, you know, these toxic views of unhealthy views of masculinity that trap some men into behaving in a way that they think is expected of them, even though they don't have the aptitude, the interest in it, it's maybe... At odds with you know how they're feeling and you know in, in, inside and what they wanted of life and don't feel like they f- are free to express that. So I, I think there's probably a lot of situations where men are taking control of the finances. They're not more knowledgeable, not necessarily even more you know better suited to it, but just do it because they think it that's what they should do.
0: Absolutely, and then you know if if you're in a uh, male female partnership, and I mean goodness knows. And if you've listened to season one, you know that I was with someone who I relied on who didn't have that knowledge either. So it was the blind leading the blind in a lot of ways. And this is just another way. I mean, you know, gender norms and I could go on about this, but this is a whole other podcast um, that gender norms can be really, really harmful. But when it comes to your money, you know, then that's something that's going to potentially financially derail you. Then that's, that's a huge, a huge issue. And So this actually leads really well into my next question. So you have been public about claiming bankruptcy at about 25, I believe. I had a close family member claim bankruptcy when I was young, and I know it caused them a lot of embarrassment. And some of those emotions transferred to me, but that is another story. Back then, the solution was to keep it quiet, to never discuss it, to hide it. And you've done the opposite. So you not only shared your story, but it's part of what I believe what made you successful. So what was that journey like for you?
1: Uh, Emotional. I did exactly the same thing as your family members did and hid it away and refused, you know, pretended it didn't happen and didn't really admit it to anyone outside of my, my parents, my immediate family, and I think maybe one or two very, very close friends. But yeah, it was to basically hide it, not talk about it, and avoid it. And my, I feel like my situation, I would have felt this way anyway, but it was exacerbated by the fact that the chronology was: I, I took on a lot of debt in the late 1990s, where there was very easy to get credit. I was investing in the markets when I, before I had any formal knowledge of <laughs> investing. Uh, I was doing reading. I was 18 and 19 years old and finishing up high school, and I was doing a lot of reading about. Investing in the markets and was infatuated by it. I had a good friend who was also doing it, and and I was we were learning together about it. And it was late 1999. This is when the internet you know had been born in the mid 90s, and so companies like Google and Amazon were being born for the first time. Steve Jobs just returned to Apple after being ousted, and you know starting a separate venture. He came back to Apple at that time was re, you know. Re- giving birth to it anew. And so this was just a pretty fascinating, exciting time. And everything was going up. I mean, never mind the big companies as I just mentioned, there was, you know, loads of tiny little stocks that were all doing well. You feel like you couldn't go wrong. So I took some money and invested it, did well. And then, hey, I, you know, if I can get access to more money. Why don't I borrow and invest? And there's a lot of corollaries actually to what I think I see happening in the markets these days, because we're at, I think, in a similar point in the market where it's we're very late in a very long run of strong stock market performance and everyone feels like everything it feels like everything's going up so everyone who's investing feels like a genius and that will end at some point and the markets you know the 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 reverse will happen where everything's falling and no matter what you buy it'll feel like you you're an idiot because everything's going down and of course you're not either a genius nor an idiot it's just you know the markets have these vagaries but um that whole experience, um, was, you know, I, I claimed bankruptcy off of huge investment losses at a very young age, cause I got access to hundreds of thousands of dollars of credit. And, um, when that fell apart and then I subsequently, you know, that took place over two, three years that investing, I, I was in school, I started studying finance. I did an MBA while I was doing the MBA is when the bankruptcy all happened. And, When I came out of it, I went to work in the investment industry. I went on to do a designation called the CFA, which is kind of the gold standard in the investment industry. And I'm talking to, I'm out in front of the media talking about, you know, finance investments. I'm talking to, you know, large institutional professional money managers about all this stuff. And I'm surrounded by colleagues who are all in the investment industry. And to admit that you'd claim bankruptcy in that type of context felt particularly shameful and embarrassing And so I didn't talk about it. But what I had was an increasingly awkward situation where, you know, I'm now 25 when I claim bankruptcy. It lasts on your credit history for seven years. So I've got all of my 20s and early 30s to go before I can start to get credit card and normal access to debt again. When you don't have a credit card and you're working at a job, you know, it's kind of hard. You will go out for group lunches or dinners or, hey, we're going to book a... You know, we got to book some travel and you put it on your credit card. And after you get reimbursed, well, I didn't have a credit card. So it became increasingly hard to explain to people, like to get out of situations where it would be obvious to everybody that I I couldn't use a credit card. I didn't have one to pay or to. So it it, to me, it felt particularly shameful and embarrassing.
0: Yeah. And if there's any um, indication that money is emotional, that right there, that that showcases it. Right. So, what would be your advice to someone going through a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal? And for our listeners, what's the difference between those two?
1: Yeah. so the bankruptcy essentially is a process by which you know your all your debts are you know taken over, essentially wiped out. Uh, your credit history is dinged as uh, an R9. You kind of have the worst credit rating possible, which indicates you've been through bankruptcy. And for, I believe it's still seven years. It was when I went through it. Um, you really can't get access to credit again. No one's going to lend to you after that period. The bankruptcy drops off your credit history, and you and it for all intents and purposes, from the outside to any borrower you go to, it looks like you've just never had any credit before. So they don't see the bankruptcy anymore, but you also don't have any positive credit history, which is, oh look, they have credit cards and other loans that they've been repaying successfully. So you don't have a high credit score. Um, so it's still, you have to go through the go through the process of rebuilding. A consumer proposal, on the other hand, is where you kind of arrange to negotiate a reduced payment for your outstanding debts. And then your credit history gets knocked, but not as badly as a, as a bankruptcy. Because I didn't end up going that route, it's been a long time since I looked into it. I forget the kind of the details, but at a high level, that's the distinction. You don't get as big a knock on your credit history. I don't think it lasts for as long. I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, But you do, you have to negotiate to pay some of the debt off.
0: So what what would be your advice for someone who's going through this now, knowing what you know?
1: Well, you know, so I think now is a really interesting time. I mean, um, particularly because of uh, COVID and the pandemic, uh, we're in a situation where, especially small business owners, increasingly there are a lot of them that are in the situation of like staring at bankruptcy because, you know, their business was shut down due to lockdowns and they've got fixed expenses. And so I personally just know a lot of folks in this position and I've counseled a, you know, a bunch of those folks just kind of in, in, in my spare time because uh, we don't do credit counseling at, 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 uh, at Kind Wealth. But, um, I've spoken to these folks and uh, friends and things like that. And one of the things I say is like, depending on your, so don't take it lightly. I mean, it certainly is not a, a fun ride or an easy experience by any means, but on the other hand, I think there's a bit of a tendency to like, Oh, a bankruptcy means end game. It's all over. I'm ruined. And I'm a laughing stock, and so I have to avoid it at all costs. And I don't think that's true either. I mean, it's there for a reason, and it's meant to basically help you. Essentially, what exactly what happened to me? I was a dumb kid, who had access to an extraordinary amount of credit for my age and income level, which you know I think is the fault of the loan providers. Um, But I take my kind of equal share of the responsibility there, and it let me out from under that, so that I didn't have to start. My career with three hundred thousand dollars in debt, and so if you're in a situation where you're under a crippling amount of debt, it it's it really is a great system to that that allows you to get from under that. I think what we need, though, just you know, and this is not an original idea, but you know, there's been folks calling for this, is especially because of the pandemic. This may be an interesting topic for another time for you, but uh, we need a situation now, like a a, a way for people to get it, uh, to, especially small business owners, who've been hurt by COVID in particular to be able to go through bankruptcy if they need to. Like if they're a, under a crippling amount of debt and their small business is not going to revive because maybe they run a certain type of business that's just not going to rebound. Um, I think of like a co-working space or something like that, or, you know, things that are indoors or, or just, you've got too much debt. Like they need to be able to get a, a way to get out of that without this idea that, oh, uh, there's nothing, I I should just keep taking on more debt. I should just keep, trying to make the payments as long as I can, kicking the can down the road, rather than facing the music and like, hey, I just, this is not working. The numbers aren't adding up here. I need a way to get out of this situation. And so uh, I would say, you know, view it as a, like consider it as a viable option. It's there for a reason and it can be a very relieving experience. Despite the shame and embarrassment I felt, it was, you know, the relief of financial stress was outrageous. I mean, I was like, like I could breathe again after kind of a year and a half of feeling like the world was closing in around me.
0: I can only imagine. And I think that this is a really kind of a nice reminder that one or a couple of financial mistakes does not necessarily define your entire financial future. And I think that that's another really damaging lesson that we're taught, um, either second or third hand, or just a belief that we kind of put inside ourselves that if I screw up once, that's it. That's it. I'm, I'm always a screw up and it's simply not true. So to that point, in your opinion, what changes do you think need to happen in the financial industry to make sure that financial conversations are more approachable and not just for, for women, for people of all genders?
1: I mean, I think, so I think there's kind of like the personal and then there's the kind of systemic Systemic. I mean, I, I would love for, you know, uh, and I think we've seen some moves towards this, but including personal finance curriculum and the education system. in uh, you know, Ontario's, I think, starting to introduce something. I don't know how that looks across the country, but, you know, when I went through school, we learned zero about personal finance. And I think that's highly problematic um, because what people need is the is the. The terminology to just have a conversation and be able to at least ask intelligent questions. You're you know, no you're not gonna make somebody a, a finance expert coming out of you know grade school or high school with some you know basic personal finance courses, but you're gonna equip them with the language to at least be able to understand the terminology and then ask them you know good questions. And I think if we get to the place where people can ask good questions, they'll at least feel comfortable asking them from a from a knowledge standpoint. I think there are other barriers that get in the way. But I think you know along with the kind of I think just that financial education, aside from the terminology, is just an understanding of the, that money is emotional and, and and that there are, that there are, that it's normal to have these things. Like, I'll tell you, like, as somebody who's a financial professional and works in running an advisory practice, I have my own, still my own money issues, like with my own personal finances, money avoidance issues where I don't want to have to look at certain our debt balances, or I, I don't want to look at the the budget, the cash flow, our cash flow and budgeting, and that's ingrained in me. I have to fight that feeling, and I'm aware of it. I, I know what's happening, you know, and I think most people don't even know that that's a thing. And then, like lastly, as well on the personal side, is understanding what money is for, like what it means to you, is really a helpful experience that I think couples should go through if you're, especially if you're in a relationship, because what often happens is money is one of the biggest reasons couples fight. And often the fights come down to just a misunderstanding about what the, what each of the people in the relationship view the purpose of money as. So, you know, one person grew up in a household where the point of money was that it should be saved and accumulated and just grow it. And the other person grew up in an environment where money was a source of power or it was meant to be given away or it was meant to be enjoyed and spent. And so now they're fighting about what to do about money when they don't even realize like, oh, right, of course, you think that we should keep saving it because that's what you think its purpose is. (laughs) And of course, I think that I'm, you know, and so like that does a lot to, uh, you know, it's a starting point for having more healthier conversations about money beyond that. So I think those are some of the things on the personal side on the and, and on the systemic side, it was I think, you know, the education system would be one I'd have to think more carefully about some of the broader systemic issues. That's a harder, a harder nut.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I think it starts with, you know, people like, like you doing what you're doing and, and um, you know, like you say, you're fighting against that, that ingrained belief and you're admitting it publicly. And that's something that a lot of people wouldn't do. And I think that that goes a long way into showing that, this is okay. And it's normal to have doubts. It's normal to not know. And it's normal to ask for clarification or ask for help.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, here's a, a couple of things and there's another systemic point I'll just bring up quickly. So financial advisors, for instance, often don't know the answer to every question that their clients have. And they don't like to admit it. Like they won't, often say, oh, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to look that up. I think that would be really helpful if more financial advisors did that. (laughs) You know, it just sort of shows like, listen, not everybody has all the answers. Sometimes there's not a single right answer to the question, but even when there is, sometimes it's just, I got to look it up. I'm not too sure, you know, and that's okay. So that, you know, there's not, there's less of this divide between, oh, this, financial advice professional who knows everything and I know nothing. I'm an idiot and they're so intelligent. It's, no, okay, they've got more knowledge about this and that makes sense that I'm dealing with them, but they don't know everything and nobody can know everything and that's okay. And uh, the other thing is is just that financial advisors, the, the ones that I know, the best ones that I know, I use a financial advisor themselves. So despite the fact that they know all of the stuff, you can't be objective when it comes to your own situation. And so having somebody else who's there to prod you and work through your kind of money hangups and issues and, and point out things that your blinders you've got on is very, very helpful. And maybe I'll just sort of point to one sort of other systemic issue that I think is really important. And I, I set up kind wealth around this, this idea was um, the tr- traditional financial industry, unfortunately is very focused on the investment conversation. Um, a lot of it has to come down This comes down to how financial advisors get compensated they They take a percentage of the you know the investment assets um, uh, but what that what happens then is the conversation gets steered really around investing and and not around a lot of the other converse like the other questions that people have money and so I like to when I talk to clients, I like to sort of point out that when when you use the term financial advice, it's conflating two different fields of expertise. one is investment advice, and that investment advice is. Hey, I have a bunch of money saved up. Which specific investments should I make that are going to produce a you know rate of return that I will help me achieve my goals? And then the other bigger laundry list of questions that you'd have about your money are considered financial planning, and that's you know might be questions about how much money should you be saving, what types of accounts to use, like RSPs or TFSA's. Um, do you need life insurance or disability insurance? Are you making the most of your company pension and benefits? What happens to your money after you die? Do you need a will? Like these types of conversations. And all of those questions don't often get enough attention, especially for the vast majority of Canadians who don't have a big investment portfolio. So they either feel like ah, an advisors advisor not going to be interested in me or the advisor genuinely is not because they just don't have a big portfolio. They don't get answers to the questions they have about their money and they don't know where to turn and so there's nobody to talk to about it. And, and then you've got, you know, oftentimes the men in the relationship, well, I know this is the right thing to do and they don't really know. And so you're kind of making suboptimal choices, but you're also just nurturing this environment of, I'm not getting answers to my questions and I'm left to my own devices. And, you know, so it's just like, I think it's it's an unhealthy kind of um, environment uh, because you've got a lot of unanswered questions with nowhere to turn. So I think the industry is like, what we do is we just offer, flat fee we people pay for our financial planning advice we don't sell any investment or insurance products and and so and we're not the only ones to do this by the way so there there's a field of what's called advice only financial planning and you pay that person that financial professional just to give you financial planning advice and not sell any financial products of any sort and then it's up to that that you know that um the, the client can be sure that hey the advice I'm getting here is not, is, a, is objective and independent. And, you know, maybe I don't have to take all the advice I get, but I, I at least know that it's not biased by they're just trying to sell me some sort of product. And I think like that, having a situation where people can go somewhere, pay an amount of money to get, to get answers to the questions that they need would be, would even be a helpful, helpful thing.
0: Definitely. And I know that for me, before I started working in banking in the financial industry, I I had that belief that oh well I'm not going to have a financial planner or financial advisor because I'm not I'm not wealthy, and now that I you know know better when that's the thing when you know better you do better. So asking the questions, it's not a shameful thing. It's actually just going to make you better at managing your money. And who doesn't want to be that, right? So, <laughs> So that actually brings me to my final question. As a parent, you're a parent, what are, I mean, you're, you're, as far as I know and what I've read, your children are very young, but what are the money lessons you're eager to pass on to them as they, as they grow up?
1: For me, a lot of it really comes down to, so, I mean, I'd like to give them confidence. So kind of just equipping them with the basic understanding. Again, i I'm not, I don't expect them to know all the rules and the rules change anyway, like all the detailed rules around how do you save taxes and which types of accounts to use. So I'm not so worried about that. They understand all of the the right choices to make, but that they feel empowered to, they've got a basic kind of knowledge and understanding of how money works, that they can ask the right questions when, and if they need to, or they can go research it themselves. So what a bit of it's like foundational. And then where I spend, you know, what I'm really passionate about is that they understand the, how to, they determine for themselves what money is f- for, what its purpose is, and that they use it for that for that purpose and that that purpose is aligned with their values. And so there are are a lot of we do a lot of work at kind of wealth around helping people align their their money with their values and in particular their investments with their values. And so there's a lot of ways, for instance, um I talk about how you can kind of spend, give or invest your money in ways that reflect your values. So how you spend it, I think a lot of us are familiar with that. I think probably most people listening to this podcast right now already practice this. You you know, whether that's, hey, I don't want to buy from XYZ company because they're really, you know, harm- their products are harmful for the environment, or I don't like the way they're treating their staff or, or it's just, I like to buy local. I, you know, I want to buy this from this boutique mom and pop shop because it's somebody in my community. That's conscious consumerism, right? There's philanthropy, giving away your money, and people do that already, and I'd love to see people do more of that. And people, I think, understand that when they give away their money, they want it to be for something that they care about. But the other area is is investing. And this is an area that a lot of people don't think about, and I'd love to see my daughters think about their money and how they're using it across how they spend it, give it, and invest it in ways that match their values. And so just like conscious consumerism, you might say, I'm not going to buy from that company, or I'm going to choose to buy from this company because I like something about it. You can do the same with investing and you can say, listen, I don't want to support these types of companies with my investment dollars because it doesn't, I don't believe in that. I think it's unhealthy or, or vice versa. I want to go find uh, certain types of investments that are making the kind of positive change in the world that I want to see. And that can be just, Hey, they, I like the way they conduct themselves or it can be, Hey, the very, thing that they're working on, the very product or service they provide is helpful to the planet. So if you think about like a clean, a new clean technology that's going to replace, you know, our dependence on oil and gas, you know, that that could be an investment that both would be financially, potentially financially lucrative and leads to the type of world you want to see, which is a cleaner, greener world.
0: Definitely, I love that. and um, that's it's funny that you bring that up because we just um, I recorded another episode yesterday with a financial advisor and we were talking about ethical investing. so it's it's definitely something that's top of mind these days. And one thing that I wanted to note that you said that really struck me when you said it was, that you want your daughters to spend, invest, give their money based on their values. You didn't say based on my values. And that's a tiny thing, but it's huge because you're recognizing that, you know, it's not, I'm not going to tell them what their values are. They're going to decide. And I just, I just wanted to note, I really, uh, I really appreciated hearing that. That's fantastic. Well, David, I thank you so, so much. This has been quite an illuminating conversation, and I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. And the last thing I wanted to ask you for our listeners, where, where can they find you online?
1: Yeah, so kindwealth.ca is um, our the financial planning uh, business I run, and I also, we also do responsible, uh, sustainable investment consulting there. Uh, I host a podcast as well on impact investing, which is making investments that make a positive impact on the world. And you can check all that out at impactinvesting.how, H-O-W.
0: Amazing. Thank you again so much for appearing on season two of Take Back, Talk Back. This has been fantastic. Thanks, David.
1: Thanks so much, Sarah, for having me. I love the podcast. I love what you're doing. And I love that you're contributing to this smashing of the taboos around money. I think it'll just be a much healthier world when we're all not afraid to admit that we have you know, our own issues, around money and, uh, you know, that, that none of us have all the answers. We'll just all feel a lot better about ourselves. So thank you. Oh,
0: that's the hope. Thank you for saying that. I love that. Reflecting on my conversation with David, something keeps coming to mind. And for me, that's the connection between money and emotion, which seems to keep popping up everywhere. David's company, Kind Wealth, beautifully dovetails the connection between money and emotions. So when it comes to money, why aren't we being kinder to ourselves? I feel like many of us are really hard on ourselves when it comes to our decisions or mistakes when it comes to our money. And trust me, I've done that too. But if we were to stop and think about how sharing our stories can have value, I think it would really open up the learning experience even more. We do tend to give each other a lot of grace when it comes to mistakes. But at the same time, we're really hard on ourselves. David talked about the shame many of us feel when we reflect on our mistakes. And there really is no value in shame. In fact, as David illustrated, shame has the potential to make your situation worse. While you're trying to hide whatever it is you're ashamed of, chances are you could be making decisions that are gonna end up making your situation worse instead of trying to heal it. Which brought me to another thought can sharing your past mistakes make you more successful? I have a good friend who's interested in coaching LGBTQIA youth. One day he said to me, but I've messed up so much. My response to him was, good, I wouldn't trust a coach who's never messed up. Take David's story for example. Going through a bankruptcy is a really difficult experience that's often painted as a shameful situation. By taking control of his narrative, David was able to be open about his experience and what it taught him. And I'm willing to bet that helps him build trusting relationships with clients and helps him remain objective. Imagine if we took those feelings of guilt, shame, and fear surrounding our money and replaced them instead with education and confidence. What would that look like? I feel better already. Thank you for listening to the Take Back, Talk Back podcast, the podcast where we open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. You know what we don't talk about enough? The sneaky ways we lose money. Everyone is always so quick to blame coffee, and I have to say I'm sick of coffee getting such a bad reputation. I love coffee. I live on coffee, please don't come for my coffee. There's something worse, account fees. So many of us pay up to 20 bucks a month just to have our money in the bank. I have a word that could describe this, but I work for a bank, so maybe I'll just say it's poppycock. There is an alternative. EQ Bank doesn't charge monthly fees, transaction fees, Interact e-transfer fees. There's no minimum balance and you earn a high interest rate on every dollar skip the bank fees, and have your coffee. Learn more at eqbank.ca. The Take Back Talk Back podcast is brought to you by EQ Bank Money Well Banked. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Equitable Bank. Any information provided is for information purposes only, and Equitable Bank makes no representations as to the validity, accuracy, or completeness or suitability of any content. You should seek the advice of a qualified professional or undertake your own research before making financial decisions. This podcast is produced by the phenomenal team at Quill. Thanks for listening.